Hello, Jazz Session listeners. I am Jason Crane, host of the Jazz Session, announcing the 100 by 300 campaign. That's right, my goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show to keep the Jazz Session going, and you can join very easily. Just visit thejazzsession.com and click on either the join link at the top of the page or the one on the side of the page. There are monthly levels starting at 10 bucks a month. There are yearly levels starting at $110 a year. Please join the people who have already become members and help keep the Jazz Session going. The Jazz Session receives no external funding from any source uh, up to and including All About Jazz, and that means for me to keep doing it, I need you. Thousands and thousands of you listen to every show, and if you could find the uh, the cost of maybe two cups of coffee uh, a month in your couch cushions, you can help keep the show going for years to come. That is the 100 by 300, 100 members by the 300th show. Join now at thejazzsession.com. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show. And if you do it that way, a little bit of your purchase price comes back to the Jazz Session. And, of course, you'll find the uh, membership section if you go to thejazzsession.com slash join or just click on any of the various join buttons on the page you can become a member for as little as 10 bucks a month or 110 dollars a year and your membership will keep the jazz session coming to you for uh, years and years to come so please do that trying to get to 100 members by the 300th show and uh, i need your help to do it and i ain't kidding so do it thanks Today's guest is the saxophonist Patrick Cornelius. He has a new album called Fierce on Whirlwind Recordings. And uh, it starts off with a track of the same name.
My guest is composer and saxophonist Patrick Cornelius. He has a brand new album out called Fierce, uh, which I've really been enjoying, and it's my pleasure to have Patrick on the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, let's start right off talking about the decision uh, not only to do... This is not strictly a saxophone trio album because there are uh, several tracks with other instruments, but uh, but sure. at least in its in its core nature, it is a sax trio album. But I've read, uh, I think in some of the press materials for the record, about your desire to do something a little different than what is often the case uh, with sax trio albums. Can you talk about your approach mm-hmm. uh, to these compositions? Well, you know... Um Obviously, I'm a, a great fan of the saxophone trio format and, you know, the great recordings by Sonny Rollins and, uh, and well, not strictly a trio, but a chordless uh, quartet uh, recordings of um, Ornette Coleman, you know, and I, I really always loved the sound of those albums. But um, when I wanted to write music specifically for this format, I was drawn more to sort of the Ornette Coleman approach of, of writing sort of melodic songs. Um, and uh, and having the improvisation be sort of more of a complement to the song rather than the Sonny Rollins approach of uh, having the song be the launching pad for the extended improvisation. So uh, I wanted to write tunes that had really strong melodic statements that lent themselves to sort of concise improvisations that, um, you know, that, uh, that complemented the melody. Can you talk about uh, how that kind of writing or that approach to this kind of album changes the role of your of your bandmates, if it does? Well, it does a great deal because, you know, writing tunes, specifically uh, when you're writing songs for the two horns plus uh, bass and drums, you have a little bit more, there's a little bit, you have a little bit more freedom in outlining the harmony. Well, maybe freedom is not the right word. Uh, actually, responsibility. <laughs> and so, when I, the tunes on my album that have uh, that have additional instruments on them, um, I think there's one there's one tune that has tenor saxophone, and there are three tunes that have valve trombone. You know, I approached writing the melodies more uh, in a contrapuntal um, in a, from a contrapuntal perspective, rather than having one uh, distinct melody line with another line supporting it. I wanted to write sort of two equal melody lines that uh, in work together in tandem with the bass line to outline the harmony. To uh, to single out uh, just one track on here, and, and I think it's my favorite track on this record, uh, the tune 278, to me oh, is great. a perfect example of writing that... Uh, that doesn't leave you wanting a chordal instrument in there. And, and just to stand in for the listener, uh, when we're talking about a chordal instrument, in other words, all of these instruments, uh, although they can play chords, some more easily than others, generally are single-line instruments. So there's not a piano, there's not a guitar, is what we're talking about. Somebody kind of filling in the harmonies. Uh, right, and you us. just happened to pick the one tune, <laughs> the one quartet tune that doesn't match the description that I just gave. Yeah, I realized that as I was as I was picking it. Uh, it's actually not a good example of the characteristics you were just describing, although it's a brilliant piece of composition, I think. Right. Well, thank you. Um, uh, you know that that was sort of like a classic. Well, it, it was obviously inspired by uh, uh, New Yorkers will recognize by the uh, Brooklyn Queens Expressway and uh, the commute that I do. Um, twice a week to my teaching job from Astoria where I live to Bay Ridge where I teach you know you you have a nice stretch of frustrating freeway to navigate there and uh, the song was sort of it's you know it's kind of an octatonic blues that was inspired by sort of the uh 
the the road rage you encounter and the blaring horns and all the construction and everything and and it sort of has a section that's uh that has one sort of pace to it and then all of a sudden maybe the traffic clears and you can go faster for a while and then everything just sort of falls apart <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've we've come this far without actually mentioning who's on the record with you. Will you uh, talk about your bandmates? Oh sure. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> there's a there's a little bit of a, a of a historical story to how this the personnel came together on this album. I mean, you know, historical small age, not large age. Um, I've been working a lot with the bass player Michael Janish for the past several years. He and I uh, run an international collaborative ensemble called the Transatlantic Collective together, and we do a lot of playing in uh, in Europe. Uh, there's some European guys and some American guys get together, write tunes, and it's exactly what it sounds. So he and I developed really good chemistry, and we work really well together, and we're really good friends. And in January 2009, he was coming to New York to record his debut album, which is called Purpose Built, which also appears on the Whirlwind Recordings label, which is incidentally his record label. Um, and uh, he was he booked three days in the studio with the drummer Jonathan Blake and, and a various uh, and, and various other instru- instrumentalists, including me. And um, you know, Jonathan has been a friend of mine, had been a friend of mine for a while, but we hadn't actually worked together all that much. So I thought, you know, this would be a great, great opportunity to uh, get into the studio with these two gentlemen who, by this, by the time that we got around to doing my recording, which was a few days after the final session of Purpose Build, uh, Mike and Jonathan had such great chemistry. You know, I figured it'd just be a whole lot of fun. And it allowed me to kill several birds with one stone, you know, being able to record with Jonathan, being able to record again with Michael, and being able to write music for this very specific context. So does that mean that you, uh, did you have enough time to anticipate that that would happen, that you were writing the music well in advance of this? Well, this is uh, this is really funny because um, <laughs> almost all of the music ended up getting written uh, uh, a few weeks prior to the recording session. <laughs> <laughs> So, 
you know, I, uh, I, I the session was on the books for for many months, and just um, we uh, we had this huge mammoth tour with the Transatlantic Collective all over Europe. It was like a two month long tour, and uh, a month after that, Mike came to. Um, New York, and he did his album, and then I did my album. So I was so busy with uh, trying to help manage that tour and to, um, you know, and to execute it and everything, that I just never got around to writing the music for this recording session until like a few weeks before. And it's amazing how motivated you can be to get something done when you've got a, uh, you know, a deadline looming ahead of you. <laughs> Will you also uh, mention the other two horn players who are on the record? Sure. Okay, these are two gentlemen who uh, are really good close friends of mine who I've had the privilege of playing with uh, uh, for many years since I was in Boston at Berkeley. Uh, the, the valve trombonist, uh, Nick Vianas, who is actually a multi-instrumentalist brass virtuoso. He plays slide trombone and trumpet extremely well. And uh, I think this is uh, this is our sixth recording together. And... Um, We've we've been really close friends, and you know it's always a lot of fun to get together with him. We I think we have great chemistry, and uh, the tenor saxophonist is named Mark Small, and um, I've always thought that Mark Small is the perfect sort of saxophone complement to my playing because he just has a tremendous uh, tremendous um, sense of economy. And uh, pacing, and you know, I, I tend to my playing tends to be for better or for the worse, you know, sort of full on uh, at all times. Um, and uh, he's sort of the exact opposite of that, like with a lot of restraint and and uh, panache and style. And and so I wrote the tune that he appears on, uh, entitled "First Dance," specifically with him in mind. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody else could have given quite the performance that he did. And and I knew that I wanted him to play on it when I wrote it. Hey, 
Patrick, for uh, for people who are just becoming familiar with you uh, through this interview, will you talk a little bit about your path uh, into the music? I know you grew up uh, in a in a family that that moved around a lot and seemed to really value the arts. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, my father was uh, a colonel in the Air Force. Uh, he was uh, an oral surgeon, and um, you know we were stationed in many places, as uh, would be a familiar story to any military brats out there. Uh, you know, I was actually born in Germany, um, and then uh, we lived in San Antonio, Texas, and and uh, Warner Robins, Georgia, and Lake and Heath, England, and um, and eventually we uh, we were stationed back in San Antonio again when it was time for me to start high school. So I went to uh, Marshall High School in San Antonio, which is sort of where I got introduced to jazz. Um, uh, Marshall High School had sort of a, uh, a period of time where the jazz program was sort of uh, blossoming. There were a lot of great musicians that were coming through the program in those days. And it was also a time when, um, you know, not too far away in Houston, the, the Houston School for Performing Arts was turning out musicians uh, like Robert Glasper and Mike Moreno and Walter Smith and Kendrick Scott, who I all got to meet through various Texas all-state programs and, and summer camps. So it was just sort of like a great time for jazz education in Texas, and and I really was motivated from meeting all these people and and just sort of dove headfirst into the obsession of practicing all the time and listening all the time. Uh, Was there a high school? uh, Oh, sorry. I was just going to. This is probably what you were about to say anyway. But was there a, a moment for you where the idea of dedicating your life to this became clear? Uh, yes, it was because for the for you know the time I was in high school, I was also a very conscientious student, and you know I I wanted to get straight A's, and uh, you know I, I was really concerned with my studies, and I took a lot of advanced classes, and I guess there was a part of me that in doing so still hadn't completely committed to the uh, to the musical career path because you know why would I have bothered doing that. You know, if I knew at the time I wanted to be a musician because it took a lot of time away from practicing, but but I think it it it, it did help me grow as a person in many respects. You know, God forbid that musicians should be well informed human beings. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, <laughs> it did. Uh, you know, there were times when I would have much rather been practicing than working <laughs> on uh, dialectical notebooks about uh, the turn of the screw. Or, you know. But um. But it wasn't until about my junior year when, when I when I when I met those uh, those gentlemen from Houston who I mentioned. I was like, "Whoa, okay." So people my age, near where I'm living, uh, are are doing this. This is possible for young people to be able to play jazz and to sound this good. And um, it sort of really kicked the desire to pursue this uh, into um, you know the, the first gear or fourth gear. Is it? I don't know. And uh, that was the moment when I decided, look, okay, you know, uh, I may have been thinking about liberal arts or pre-law or whatever, but I know that I wouldn't be completely happy doing anything other than music. And that was the moment when I decided, okay, we're applying to music schools and uh, not Harvard after all. (laughs)
And you uh, you ended up at Berkeley, is that right? I did end up going to the Berkeley School of Music, which, as it turns out, I think, in retrospect, was probably the best possible place for me at the time. Um, a lot of the guys from Houston uh, ended up going to, um, around the same age as me, ended up going to the new school. And I could have done that, and part of me wanted to do that. But I don't think, in retrospect, I was ready to get to New York just yet. Uh, I, I think I needed to, to, even though San Antonio is a large city, it's still is kind of a city of suburbs and I wasn't ready to make that big of a leap into the big city yet. I think I needed Boston as kind of a stepping stone and Berkeley was such a great laboratory environment for me and I I met so many so many great musicians there and contacts that have been with me you know ever since you know so many great musicians were there at the time uh, you know Um, that was the best place for me. Was it in any way uh, either a shock to the system or, uh, I don't know, kind of a very intense experience more than you had expected to suddenly be in a place where uh, everyone was on a very high level and incredibly dedicated to their art? Well, uh, yes, it was. But at the same time, uh, you know, there was a very strong sense of community. So I never felt intimidated by it. Um, I, everybody was always was very, very welcoming, I felt. I mean, you know, I used to go around to, you know, just with my horn and knock on the doors to every... The thing about Berkeley is that no matter what time of night, there were always like 20, 25 jam sessions going on somewhere in the school. I used to just grab my horn and just knock from door to door, can I come in and play? And nobody knew who I was. And Maybe I was just oblivious to it, but everybody seemed to be welcoming to me. And maybe if they thought I was a nuisance, they didn't show it. But, but um it, it was very inspiring to be in such a such a, a bustling creative environment, but uh, you know, I don't know if I'd use the word shock, but it was definitely definitely a great laboratory for me. And you decided afterward uh, to go on for advanced study at the Manhattan School, is that right? Well, that was a few years. Oh, there was happening. time in between. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because you know, I mean, obviously, we all know that you don't have to go to school to play jazz, but. Um, and when I was finished with Berkeley, you know, I was very much of the mindset that, you know, I was done with school and, uh, you know, who needs it anymore and it's just a waste of money and blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to teach anyway. I just want to play. And, uh, you know, I got to New York and a few years of reality happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, things were a little bit rough for a while. And I started teaching because I had to, but then after a while, I ended up teaching because I really wanted to, and uh, I started to really like it, and now I I really love teaching. It's one of my favorite things, one of the favorite parts of my career, and just I I love it just as much as I love performing, and uh, so after a while, I realized, okay, if I want to be able to take this to the next level, I'm going to need a more advanced degree. I mean, of course, that's debatable, too. I mean... But uh, it would have it would benefit me to get a more advanced degree. So then I started looking at where I would want to go, and the only place I wanted to go, based on the criteria of who I could study with, was the Manhattan School of Music. Because at the time, you know, the great Dick Oates was teaching there, who has always been a great inspiration to me.
when you uh, when you're using the word teaching, are you talking primarily about teaching private students at that time, or in a, in a more formal setting? Uh, both private students and um, you know, I, I I taught at a few schools at the time, a few sort of not not private school in the sense of you know uh, a private K through twelve school, but you know. Um, teaching studios like around Long Island and, and Brooklyn. And what, and, uh, what is it about teaching that, uh, that, uh, appeals to you? Well, first of all, uh, you know, teaching is a good way to make sure that you really are up on your fundamentals because <laughs> there's nothing like having to demonstrate, uh, holding a long tone on a low B flat at pianissimo with a good tone quality, um, you know, to make you, realize that you have to practice that stuff again you know and um and also encountering students that uh have challenges in places that you never did um you know sort of sort of gets you to have to develop creative problem solving skills and um you know problem solving skills that you can apply to areas of your own playing where you have weaknesses so that's one big part of it. You know, you learn so much more about music when you have to teach it, I think. At least I have. And uh, the other part is that when the students really get it and they really care, uh, and you can tell that they're really listening to you and it's not just going in one ear and out the other, it's so gratifying. I mean, um, I did a, uh, a workshop, a day of workshops followed by a performance as part of a, as part of a, a workshop in connection with the Juilliard school at a school in uh in Connecticut and you know we were working with the students in jazz combos for for a whole day and then that weekend we performed a concert with them and you know they had been doing exactly everything that we had mentioned to them they took it seriously and there was so much improvement and it was really gratifying and those are the sort of moments when all the sort of you know knocking your head against the wall and feeling like you're repeating yourself a thousand times you know those those moments all become worth it patrick are there some uh, upcoming concerts uh, or other projects that you'd like to mention Yes. Well, first of all, I want to uh I want to mention a venue that I I play at a lot and I really love being a part of their rotation and it actually was a venue that helped me develop the music for this recording and that is a place called The Bar Next Door, which is located downstairs from the La Lanterna restaurant in the West Village. And uh, I play there quite frequently, so um you know, just check their Check their schedule, and you might find that I'm going to be there soon. Uh, and the other really big thing that I want to mention is this is still a ways away, but uh, on March the 4th, I'm going to be giving a big concert at the Rubin Museum as part of the Harlem and the Him- Himalayas uh, concert series in New York. And uh, I'm really happy and really excited about that performance. It's such a beautiful venue and a beautiful room, and really honored to be in their uh, their concert lineup. So, um, you know, again, that's a ways away, but please mark your calendars. March 4th It's going to be a really great time. And do you know yet what that program will consist of when you play that night? It will consist of music from uh, all music from this album. We'll be celebrating this album uh, as sort of a delayed CD release uh, concert. Um, and in addition, I'll be premiering uh, a new work that was commissioned by the Rubin Museum in conjunction with their collections. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's great. 
uh, are there uh, other projects that you're involved with, either uh, as a, a leader or co-leader or sideman that uh, you want to talk about in this? Yeah, uh, I'm part of two sort of collective ensembles uh, that I, I've been really happy to work with. One is what I mentioned before, the uh, Transatlantic Collective. And we've sort of been dormant for the past year or so because uh, three out of the five of us have just had babies. <laughs> so That'll do it. <laughs> you know, you know, that ensemble has a very, uh, a, a very big sort of touring agenda, so I don't think the three of us wanted to take some time away from that. Um, but you can find more about the Transatlantic Collective at uh, www.thetransatlanticcollective.com. And yes, I know that's a mouthful. Um, and then the other band that uh, I'm part of is just sort of starting to get on its feet. We recorded an album, and we're we're gonna we're in the process of uh, mixing and mastering it, and et cetera, et cetera, and trying to to plot our our global domination plans. And the name of that band is ADD. Uh, as an attention deficit disorder, um, and um, the other members of the band are uh, Miles Okazaki on guitar, uh, John Chin on piano, Lucas Santaniello on drums, and Jason Stewart on bass. All sort of New York stalwarts, and um, it's called ADD because we all write for the band, and we all have very sort of very very different musical styles to our composition. So I'm excited about that project too. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be pressing on with this sort of cordless trio slash quartet ensemble, and uh, and then on the horizon also, I, uh, sometime next year, towards the end of next year, I'll be releasing a, a quartet slash quintet album with chords this time. So a lot of stuff coming up. Oh, that's very exciting. And I will just uh, self-servingly mention that Miles Okazaki has been on this show, and folks can uh, look him up in the in the archives. Uh, is there anything uh, I haven't asked you about that you'd like to mention, Patrick? Um, let's see. I'm thinking here. I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of territory. Just Oh, I just mentioned that, uh, of course, the CD can be purchased a variety of places. Um, from my website, uh, www.patrickcornelius.com, from uh, Whirlwind Recordings, which is www.whirlwindrecordings.com, also Amazon, iTunes, you know, buy.com, just about anywhere. Uh, the name of the album is Fierce, and I'm really excited about it. Also, you know, my, my last album, Lucid Dream, which features Aaron Parks, Kendrick Scott, Sean Conley, Gretchen Parlato, and Nick Vanoss is also, I still have plenty of copies sitting here in my apartment that I'd love to get rid of. Uh, you can, you can purchase that on my website as well, also on iTunes. And, um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at P Cornelius Jazz, and on Facebook and all the relevant social media. That's great. And uh, links to Patrick's website and to the album will be uh, in the show notes at thejazzsession.com. Patrick Cornelius has a new record out. It's called Fierce, and uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, the word fun always sounds dismissive to me, but it is a really fun record, and uh, I really enjoyed listening to it. And it's been great to talk to you about it, Patrick. Thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you, and thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
That's music from saxophonist Patrick Cornelius and his album Fierce. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Please visit thejazzsession.com for links to purchase the music that you hear on the show, and also please become a member of the show. Looking for 100 members by the 300th show, and if I can get there, then the Jazz Session can keep going for years to come, and I think I'm going to make it but only with your help. So uh, please visit thejazzsession.com today and pledge your support. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They have a bunch of great records, including the most recent one, Farcical Built for Six. You'll find all their albums at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Session's logo. Please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.